Well, thank you for uh, joining in song with us. Uh, it was uh, wonderful to worship the Lord in song uh, together with you. What an encouragement uh, and what a great way to uh, begin our Lord's Day, as Stephen said. If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we will be uh, spending our time today. I want to read to us, beginning in verse 18 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Listen now to the inspired, inerrant Word of our God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning. Thank you for the blessing of singing of lifting up these truths about You and about this salvation that we have in Christ, of worshiping You in song, lifting up Your name. And as we do that, we ourselves are lifted up. Our minds are lifted to You. Our thoughts are lifted to You. And we encourage one another around us and are encouraged ourselves. Father, we are grateful that You have blessed us with the opportunity You've even commanded us to take advantage of this opportunity to worship You in this way. And Father, now as we turn to Your Word and we look at this topic of preaching, as we look at the topic of what the world considers to be wise or foolish, powerful or weak, we confess that we need You. We rejoice that we have Your Word before us, and we pray that You would speak to us Your wisdom from Your Word by Your Spirit in our next few minutes together. And Father, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper at the end of our service, I pray that You would address our hearts that each of us, where we find ourselves, 
would learn of you today from your word, that we would be directed in our minds to Jesus who gave his life for us, that we in him would have life eternal. So bless us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's the beginning of a new year, and I, uh, I don't spend a ton of time reflecting. It may sound like I do. I don't spend a ton of time uh, reflecting on uh, New Year's resolutions or anything like that, but we do uh, in preparation for the State of the Church meeting upcoming, and as we uh, think about what's gone on the previous year and what might happen in the year coming and things like that. Being a preacher, I naturally think about preaching, and, and uh, I, I was kind of pondering this idea and wondering if you've considered, and maybe, maybe you can remember the time before you were a Christian, and what you thought about preaching. If you were invited to a church service, if you, uh, if you attended a church service and you were not yet a believer, what did you think about preaching? Uh, I remember that as a brand new Christian, sitting through preaching was very interesting uh, and unusual. It was a little bit like a classroom session, but not quite, and I didn't quite have a category for it. And, uh, and I wonder what, what you thought about preaching. And I wonder what the world thinks about preaching. This is a very unusual situation we find ourselves in, where uh, you are all sitting facing this direction, and there's one guy standing up in front of you facing the other direction, talking about a book that we have open between us. I wonder, I wonder what the world thinks of preaching. And it's not just the world. It's not just out there, outside the doors, outside beyond the bounds of Christianity and wondering kind of what they think. But if you were to poll uh, people who name the name of Christ in our country and you were to ask them what preaching ought to be, what it ought to be like, and what ought to be the subject matter of preaching, I wonder what kind of answers we would come up with. I mean, after all, this is an election year, and so I can imagine that uh, that would be pretty high on the priority list for Christians to hear uh, preaching on uh, politics, on the issues, on the candidates, on all of those sorts of things, and, and I, some people are saying no, and others are thinking, well, yeah, please do. <laughs> it, would, would that be an appropriate topic? Is that what we ought to focus on? Well, there are churches that really focus on that. They spend a lot of time talking about that, even if, even if they do so. There are some who do so poorly <clears throat> and some who do so in a better way, but maybe we should talk politics. Or maybe we uh, look at the news and see what's going on in our world and recognize some dangerous cultural trends, and, and we could name about 15 of those. And maybe we ought to spend our time focusing on uh, those dangerous cultural trends and the things that affect our children and uh, the, the, the decline in our culture and in, in all manner of ways. Maybe we should focus on those sorts of things and spend some time um, focusing on preaching about those issues. Uh, there are churches that, that do that. Well, maybe you've noticed that your dollar is worth less than it was a year ago. Maybe we ought to talk about uh, because of inflation, we ought to talk about how to handle your finances. We ought to talk about uh, some biblical guidelines for what we ought to do in, um, in, in families, how to be wise with our money. Well, that's a biblical topic. Maybe we ought to spend our time 
focusing on that, and there are many churches that do and many opportunities to do that. Or maybe it's the rise of persecution amongst Christians or of Christians around the world and at home, which is surprising maybe. We hear about far-off places in North Korea or different places in Africa where there are Christians being put to death and in other places too, and somehow it kind of makes it seem like it's no big deal because it's all the way over there. But we see that there are certain aspects of discrimination against Christians at home, and maybe we ought to begin a preaching series on how to deal with persecution, how to deal with suffering. Is that a legitimate biblical topic? It is. It's a legitimate topic. Is that what we ought to spend our time preaching on? Is that what we ought to focus on in our preaching? Or perhaps the topic of war. There is war in Israel. There's war in Ukraine. Uh, We think about Russia. We think about China. We think about North Korea. We ponder the the idea of a World War III. Maybe we ought to focus on uh, preaching and talking about those kinds of topics. There's, There's really no end of topics we could preach on, is there? We could keep making lists, and these are just, I came up with those as fast as I could type them. If we could, if we could poll uh, one another and, and think about uh, lists, we could have a million things we could preach about, a, a ton of different topics. And, and it's not, you know, those are good topics. Many of those are very good topics that we ought to spend time talking about. Maybe we ought to preach about them. Maybe we ought to have Bible studies on them. But what ought to be our focus What ought to be the thrust of our preaching, week in and week out? What ought to be the thrust of our preaching over the course of decades? What ought the church to focus on? What you find when you look at the history of the church is that when when the church gets to focusing on one of these topics or a topic like that, it becomes very relevant and very hot for a period of time. And when when the, the church across the nation focuses on those things, there, there's, a, there's a big growth and a lot of things happen, and then the cultural situation changes. The political situation changes. Something different comes on the scene, and that church that was focused so strongly on that topic suddenly becomes passe. And that, that, was, that was my grandma's church. That was what they used to talk about, and that's not really the issue of today. And so you see that if we were to focus on those passing kind of issues, as important as they are, if we were to spend the majority of our time drilling down on those kinds of things, we could have, we could have really good conversations and, and, and some really good things going on right now. But what about in five years? What about in ten years? What about in the big picture? What ought we to focus on? What ought to be our purpose and what ought to be the topics of our preaching? I think about these things because I preach. And I wonder, I see, I read the same news you do, I I hear about the same world goings on, and I see my dollar shrinking just like yours, and I wonder, should I preach on those things? What ought I to focus on? Well, Paul, in writing 1 Corinthians, was addressing this issue of preaching. And our passage today in these few verses that we look at really focuses on the concept of preaching and the topic of preaching. What is the focus of preaching? And so rather than polling uh, our nation or uh, or rather uh, even polling those who name the name of Christ in our country, um, let's look at what Paul has to say about the topic of preaching and particularly preaching as it is viewed in the world. 
And so I ask again, what, how do you think the, the world views preaching? What we do with a Sunday morning? And so we open up here to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and we see what Paul has to say to us. And he sprinkles in his arguments uh, uh, throughout it, but, but you can see that right off the bat, the world sees that, the, the, the points out the foolishness of preaching. It is a foolish task. Now, that, that has real bearing here in Corinth. This is a, a Greek city. It's heavily influenced by Greek thought. And if you know about uh, Greeks, if you know about Greek history, you know that there was a great value of wisdom. Wisdom. And not just being smart. And not even just wisdom like knowing how to live life, but, but really it was a value of ideas. There became uh, a great emphasis upon philosophers. The great philosophers in Greek philosophy have influenced Western civilization down to today. And so it's hard to overestimate or overstate the influence of uh, wisdom and uh, Greek thinking and the influence that it had in the Greek world. And Paul is dealing with this church in Corinth, which is located right in that world, and they valued wisdom. Back in, in this day, there was, you know, being a philosopher was an important position. And you could actually travel around and, and go to different cities, and, and you would talk, and you would teach people, and you would have a following. You would have these disciples who would go along with you, and they would learn of you. And, and being a philosopher was, was a, 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 like being an influencer in that culture. They valued wisdom, and so, uh, you know, you, you, would, you would pursue not just high thoughts and high ideals, but you would want to present them in such a way that was beautiful to listen to. And so there became a, a real study on presentation and oratory, rhetoric, and what is the best way to word something so that it has the most uh, impact on the person that you're talking to? It became an art form. And so this Greek culture, with their great history of wisdom and philosophy, the people with that uh, kinds of expectations of these philosophers and, 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 and people dispensing wisdom and, and all of that, what were those people thinking of the Christian preachers? Well, when they looked at their preaching, they looked at what they were preaching. They thought it was just foolishness. It's just silly. To, to stand up and, and, and say, uh, you know, and preach, and, and the, the, the Christian preacher is, is not a polished orator, typically. Especially in this day, not, not someone who would gain a following as being real eloquent with his words. And so when the Greeks looked at the Christians and looked at the Christian message, they said, well, there's nothing wise about that. There's nothing wonderful about that. They, 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 it's not even that they were only suspicious. They, they, they despised Christian preaching, the preaching of the cross. So there was, there was a real... Um, turning up of their nose toward Christian preaching. And so when Paul, who's writing to this church that is located in this Greek community, he starts off 
and points out to them that the word of the cross is foolishness. It's foolishness to them. It seems unwise. It seems unpolished. It seems foolish. It seems like it's not even worthy of your time. And yet these Christians come and preach this message. And they would be traveling through and they weren't, uh, they weren't respected men and they weren't uh, followed by all of this entourage that would make them look good or anything like that. They would just show up and they would tell anyone who would listen about Jesus who had died for sins. What a foolish and simple message. And this is what Paul was dealing with here in, uh, in Corinth. It's what he's writing to. But really, it wasn't just a Greek problem, was it? There's a, a sense of wisdom that, that even the Jews who listened to Jesus, uh, they, they wanted Him to, um, to present things in a certain way. They, they had a certain standard of, of their own wisdom, and Jesus kind of went against their standard. Again and again, Jesus had to say to them, have you not read? You haven't even read your own book. Well, of course they had read it. They had memorized it. It's just that Jesus was teaching not according to their standards. He was teaching as one who has authority and not saying, well, Rabbi so-and-so teaches this. He would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And so there seemed to be a real foolishness to Christian preaching. And from the perspective of those who had such a high regard for wisdom and, and even kind of accounted themselves in that category, right? As one of the wise, one of who likes to listen to this, Paul's ministry was unimpressive and was foolish. Folks, from the perspective of some types of non-Christians, maybe, maybe even many, who are pretty sure they have life figured out, what we're doing is silly. That you have the Bible open in your hand. That there's a man standing in front of you attempting to explain what's here is silly. What are we doing wasting our time? That's what Paul was dealing with here in Corinth. And, uh, and the church there was beginning to listen to these kinds of people. They were, they were beginning to look at Paul and say, well, yeah, Paul was really kind of unimpressive. There are these other guys, these other preachers who come through, and they're fancier, and they speak better than Paul does. Maybe we should listen to them. Yeah, their message is a little different. They don't talk as much about Christ. They don't really explain Scripture to us. But, but they sure fit the mold a whole lot better. Maybe let's listen to those guys. Well, so Paul, uh, writing here, says, no, the, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he asks, uh, quotes there from the Old Testament, verse 19, it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. God's message and God's methods do not line up with the best laid plans of what we would consider to be wise people as a culture. He says, in fact, in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? See, Paul is pointing out that those who were calling preaching foolishness were actually foolish themselves. 
He points out, secondly, not only the foolishness of preaching, but the weakness of preaching. The weakness of preaching. Look at verse 22. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs, demand a demonstration of power. If you think about uh, where Corinth was located, it's a Greek city, but it's in what empire? It's in the Roman Empire that was very powerful. They liked power. They got their way by means of power. And even the Jews who lived there had this expectation that the messenger of God would demonstrate, would put on display the power of God to validate His message, would put on display by means of some sort of miracle or something like that, would show that God was behind the message. You see, the world expects a demonstration of power. The world expects something impressive to look at. Whether it's the Romans and the military might that they expected, or whether it's the Jews and the signs that they expected from God's messenger. And when they didn't see that enough, they questioned the messenger. I mean, think about John chapter 6. How often did uh, Jesus himself, the one who cured the sick, who healed the lame, who walked on water, who multiplied loaves and fishes to feed thousands of people, who raised the dead. They would look at Jesus and they would say, what sign do you do to verify your message? Think of, think of John chapter 6. It's a, it's a really a great example What's going on there in John chapter 6 is that at the, at the beginning of uh, that ministry, there's a large crowd following him. And, and uh, go ahead and turn there in, in your Bible to John chapter 6. Keep your thumb in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The whole chapter is a demonstration of the people and their desire to see a sign. Look at verse 2 of John chapter 6. A large crowd was following him. Why? Why was a crowd following him? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. He'd been healing people. And the crowd was on board with that. And so they, they, they saw the signs that he was doing, and so they were following him. Well, then, as you, as you follow this passage along, what's the, what's the heading above chapter 6? In my Bible, it says, Jesus feeds the 5,000. He's got this great crowd because they saw his signs. They don't have enough food. And what does he do? Miraculously multiplies food and feeds 5,000 of them, plus women and children. Is that a sign? I would say that's a sign. All right? So verse, verse 14, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The response was wonderful. They recognize that he's the prophet. They see the sign that he's done. So the next day, this crowd had, has crossed over the Sea of Galilee to follow him, where he walked across in the middle of the night, by the way. Arrives on the other side. The people wake up, and they say, he's gone. When, where did he go? And they figure out where he went. So they follow him across the sea, going after him. And when they get there, look at verse 28. They said to him, what must we do? They've tracked him down. They've gone back to him. He's fed the 5,000. They're following him because of all the signs that he has done. They said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. 
So Jesus answered them, believe in him whom, he's, whom God has sent. Believe in me is what Jesus is saying. So they said to him, you see verse 30? It almost looks like a typo. Like someone cut and pasted a verse out of a different chapter. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Uh, excuse me? Looking for a sign. Looking for a sign. One is not enough. Healing two people. Healing three people is not enough. Feeding 5,000 people with, with a few loaves and fishes is not enough. It's just not enough. They'll follow him. But then to believe in him, they say, well, well yeah, but, you know, you need to perform a sign so that we will follow you. There needs to be a demonstration that God is behind you, that God is at work in you, that God's using you, speaking through you, that I should believe in you. There needs to be some kind of sign, Jesus. I mean, after all, it's only reasonable. But of course, Jesus has been performing signs all along, and they only asked for more. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. When Jesus himself walked on this earth, they demanded signs of him. They were looking for some kind of a show of force. They were looking for some miraculous demonstration by God that God was validating his words. Of course, they, the ones that they received were not enough. And they kept asking for more. And so you can understand why Jesus would say back in, or why, why uh, Paul would say about Jesus back in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, We preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews. Yeah, it's folly to, gen to Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to Jews. The, Jesus, the one who expected to be believed by the people, the one who was who told over and over again, you need to show us a sign so that we will believe in you, so that we will follow you. Do something miraculous, at least something, Jesus. And what's the message the Christian preaches? About that Jesus, we preach the message of Him, that one, crucified. The very opposite, apparently, of a demonstration of power. But even when Jesus, who was held with a certain dignity, they called Him rabbi. They respected His teaching at, at certain times. They demanded signs of Him. When he was on the earth, when he was respectable, when, there was, when he would have wise things to say, they would send them away pondering. They would look at him and they would demand signs of him. And now Paul comes along. And what is the message that Paul preaches? The Paul, pre Paul preaches the message not only about Jesus who does the teaching, but Jesus hanging naked on the cross, shamed, exposed. Seems like the very opposite and seems like the, the, the exact opposite of a demonstration of God's power to validate Jesus' message. No, there He is hanging on the cross, exposed, humiliated, with people mocking Him. That's the message you want to preach, Paul? That's the message that you want to use to get through to the Jews who demanded signs when Jesus was walking in their midst? It's weak. 
He's weak. And so this message that Paul is proclaiming was off-putting to the Jews who were listening to it. But that's not the end. There's, there's, there's more. It gets worse. Because not only was Paul preaching Jesus and saying, you need to look to Him and you need to believe in Him. And by the way, he was crucified. But who was he preaching Him to be? The Messiah. The Jews who had been waiting for God to send the Deliverer. This was the greatest expectation that they had, that God would send one who would lead them to victory, who would set them free from their captors. That glorious one. Paul, you, you want us to believe that that glorious one that we've been anticipating is hanging naked on a cross? That is weak. We've been expecting strength. Preaching of the cross is foolish. And the preaching of the cross is weakness. Seems like it. And it's repulsive to many people nowadays, isn't it? If you want to talk about Jesus, the teacher, you can get people on board. If you want to talk about Jesus who uh, taught things like uh, love your neighbor as yourself, do to others, things like that, you want, to, you want to preach that about Jesus, you can get a following very easily. That's not hard to sell. That's not something difficult for people to believe. But when we talk about Jesus crucified for your sin, that's repulsive to people on a number of levels. Surely if God were going to appear on earth to save people, He would be impressive. Not going to a cross. He would do powerful miracles to demonstrate those would be the ways he would show his strength and he would win the final battle miraculously. And we preach Christ crucified. And so the preaching of the cross seems like foolishness, doesn't it, to respectable people? It seems like it's a demonstration of weakness that we would talk about our Savior on a cross dying. But Paul will say thirdly that the wisdom, uh, the wisdom of God is on display, the power of God is on display in preaching. He says, we preach Christ crucified, verse 23, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul is recognizing something that we need to recognize as well. That in the, in the, the view and the estimation of the world, the Preaching of Christ is not respectable. It's not acceptable. It's not for polite company. It's certainly not going to be successful. But what does Paul say? That, that's the case for, for those who don't get it. 
Those who don't understand it, those who are perishing, that's the way they view things. But for us, what is Christ? What is the cross of Christ? What is the preaching of the cross of Christ? It is the very power of God. Applied where it needs to be applied. Demonstrated in the way that's most necessary because what is our problem? When we read through the Gospels and we see the struggles that the Jews who listened to Jesus had, we, we recognize that they, didn't, that they wanted to throw off the shackles of Rome. That they, that they wanted a, a kind of political victory, a kind of military victory, a kind of freedom in that way. They misunderstood their real problem. By their assessment of the problem, the issue was Rome and things like that, and so it would take one type of power to clear that issue off the table. That's not the real issue. And so it takes a different kind of power to address that issue. We, we live in a world where when you talk to those who don't know Christ and ask them what is their understanding of, of, of the greatest need that they have, it's not the power of Rome. It could be any of a number of things. And whatever they view as the greatest problem, the greatest power that must be overcome, that's how they will expect God to apply power and demonstrate power. And so, if the person is, is uh, uh, politically minded, and that's the biggest thing in the world to them, then God is going to do political things. And if you come preaching a Christ who's not going to do big political things, they don't want anything to do with it. That's weak and foolish. Take that message elsewhere. And I think about us. I think about the preaching that we do in church. And when Christians think about what is the biggest problem? What is the greatest power that needs to be overcome? What's the biggest problem that we have in our lives? And I don't know the answer for you. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's political. Maybe it's moral. What, in your estimation, what is the greatest problem, the biggest problem that you have? Because what you assess as the biggest enemy, the biggest obstacle, the biggest problem to be overcome is where you will expect God to apply His power to give victory in that area. And perhaps... Your assessment and my assessment of what is our greatest problem is not the same as God's assessment. And so we preach Christ crucified week after week. Because you and I begin to move off center. We begin to focus on some other things. That This thing, whatever this thing is, is the greatest power and God must work in this area or God is not working. Paul would have us Preach Christ crucified week in and week out. He, he actually says down in, in chapter 2 and verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul, whose education was ridiculous, he basically had two PhDs. He knew all kinds of stuff. But when I preach, what I know is Christ crucified. I determined that. I made the decision to do that. And you and I need to be reminded week in and week out that our greatest problem is our sin problem. My greatest problem is not this relational issue. 
Our greatest problem is not this other thing. The greatest issue in my life that I must deal with is my sin problem. And since that's the greatest issue in my life, the greatest problem and obstacle that must be overcome, that's where I will look for the power of God to be at work. And folks, when I have that assessment, I am sharing God's assessment. And I can expect Him to apply His power in that very spot, dealing with my own sin. So, Paul will say that Christ is the power of God, applied in ways unexpected because we've had a misunderstanding of of what our biggest problem is. But Paul has determined, and I have determined, that again and again we will lay before the people of God what is the greatest threat against them. And it is the sin problem. And how is it dealt with? How has God's power been put on display, applied in the aspect of that sin? How has that been done? It's in the wisdom of God. It's in the wisdom of God that our very own sin, the corruption that's within us, has made us hateful to God, odious to God, has made us God's enemy put us at enmity with God because of our own sin. That's the natural condition. That's the result of sin. And God in His wisdom sends His Son to be born as one of us, to take on humanity, to to come into this world as one of us and to live a life faced with the same temptations that we're faced with. But He stands strong remains obedient to the Father all the way through, obeys God from the heart, and does so on our behalf. And then He, the one who has been successful, who has obeyed God all of His life, goes to the cross, goes to the place where punishment is meted out for those who have disobeyed God. Goes to the place of the cross to bear the wrath of God towards the sins of all those who will believe in Him. So that in that way, sin is punished. The greatest problem, the greatest threat against us is our sin. And it has been executed, praise God, not in us, Christian, but in Jesus. And the penalty paid in Him, paid by Him. All of the wrath of God for my sin placed upon Him such that He dies where I deserve to die. It's the wisdom of God that would come up with this plan. It's the wisdom of God that would make it so that God who must execute sin, His wrath is poured out against sin. How is it that God can do that and us not be destroyed? It's by there being a representative who is perfect and can bear that wrath in our place, who has no sin of His own, But He can stand in our place and bear the wrath of God for us so that you and I, by faith in Christ, get to have that sin addressed in Him, dealt with in Him, the penalty for it paid in Him. And how do I know? Because God raised Him from the dead. All that sin had been placed on Jesus so that He was 
wretched in God's sight. And God raises him from the dead, indicating that the full payment had been made for all of that sin. And so, folks, we preach Christ crucified because we recognize what is the greatest problem. And, and Christian, this is what we get to recognize. That problem has been dealt with in Christ. And if, if I will keep in mind the magnitude of that problem, if I will keep in mind that God Himself has dealt with that finally and fully for me, what freedom I have, what joy I have, what a new identity I have that I get to be a child of God. I get to be not God's enemy, but at peace with God. I get to be called His own child. I get to come to Him in prayer. He works on my behalf. He takes care of me. He encourages me by His Spirit. He gives me His Word. He gives me you to encourage me. And suddenly my life is changed. It's changed completely. But how much of that do I miss? And how much of that do you miss? When we, when we get off base and we begin to think that, no, actually, uh, inflation is my biggest problem. No, the relational problems I'm dealing with and these difficulties, that's the greatest thing in the world. That's the greatest obstacle in the world for me. And surely God must work in this area, and if He doesn't, He's failing me. Well, these problems are real problems, but they are not the greatest. The greatest one is your sin, and it has been paid for in Christ. Praise God for that. And so we preach Christ crucified. I don't really care if it seems foolish to the world. I don't really care if, if Christ is, appears weak I don't, I don't, or if Christianity appears weak because what we do is, is preach a crucified Lord whom God raised from the dead. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so we will preach that. And this message isn't really just about preaching, is it? It's about listening and hearing. It's about sharing. It's about how we live our lives. It's about where we keep our focus as Christians on Christ Himself. And there are a million other legitimate problems in your life that are secondary. And when we understand this one, when we keep our eyes fixed on how it is God has addressed this greatest problem in our lives, everything else begins to fall in place a little bit more. And we're better equipped to address those difficulties, especially when we realize that God is at work in those areas as well. So, Christian, preaching Christ crucified ought to be a daily, a daily habit of ours that we preach Christ crucified to ourselves because I need reminding. I only get to see you a couple times a week. You only get to see me a couple times a week. But let's remind each other. Let's remind ourselves of Christ crucified on our behalf, that we get to have peace with God because of Him. And if you are not in Christ, if you don't know Christ, if you're on the outside and this sounds foolish and weak, let me tell you, this is the power of God 
and the wisdom of God applied to your greatest problem, whether you realize that's your greatest problem or not. Having your sin dealt with that you can have peace with God because of what Christ has done. And so we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper now. So if I could have the men who are going to do that come forward, please. This is the time in our service where we get to celebrate Christ crucified for us. And we have the bread and the cup that represent the body and the blood of Christ. And we as Christians celebrate this. It's an encouragement to us. It's a reminder to us of what Christ has done for us. And if you're not in Christ, if you don't know Jesus, let, let these things pass. Just don't take them. Just think about what we've talked about. Think about what is the greatest problem in your life. What is the greatest problem in the world? And, and how has God addressed that problem? The greatest problem in the world is your sin problem. And God has addressed it in Christ. And I would love to talk to you afterwards if we get the chance, but let these elements pass by. Christian, as these are passing by, we get to be reminded, and it's a painful reminder, but it's important, reminded of our sin. But we don't stop there. We don't wallow in our sin. We don't, we don't dwell on it. We don't, we don't conjure it up and, and, and remember the things that we've done so that we can beat ourselves up and so we can feel awful. We pull it up and we confess it to Christ. We find forgiveness in Him and we see that this awful thing that I've done, these awful things that I've done, He paid the penalty for them. And I ask Him for forgiveness. I confess them to Him and He forgives me. And those sins are done away. And I get to have peace with God. And so as the elements pass by, confess your sin. Find forgiveness in Christ and rejoice in the fact that He has accomplished all of that work for you. So we will leave today celebrating what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so we come first to the bread. If you would take up the bread, please. Paul himself later in this same book will say, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, we hold here the bread. which points us to the body of Christ broken for us. And we needed His body to be broken because of our sin. And we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, that He gave Himself to pay the penalty for our sin in His body on the tree. And even as we contemplate His body broken, we call to mind our sins and we confess them to you. And we ask that you would forgive us our sins. And we know that in Christ you will. 
And we rejoice in that forgiveness. We thank you for Jesus who gave his body for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Men, if you would take up the cup. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this cup. We rejoice in the blood of Jesus, our Savior, who establishes the new covenant in which we have credited to us His righteousness, His payment for sin, his obedience to you gets to be counted to us. 
We rejoice that we get to be in this new covenant, that we get to be your children because of what Christ has done. And Him shedding His blood is the spilling of blood that inaugurates that covenant, and we rejoice in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. Christian, isn't it a wonderful thing to have peace with God and forgiveness in Christ? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice that we get to have peace with you in him. We rejoice that we have uh, your word in front of us, which points us to Christ crucified for us. May we remind ourselves regularly. May we remind one another regularly. And thank you for this, the Lord's Supper, which reminds us even in this way about Jesus and his death uh, for all of those who will put their faith in him. We rejoice We praise you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There will be a family up front who would love to pray with you.
Uh, God bless you all, and you are dismissed. I would remind you as well, this is Benevolence Sunday. So if, if you want to give in the box back there, it's Benevolence Sunday. Thank you.